We might be able to see on your outlines there, I've called today's talk The Problem of God's Judgment. And it can be a problem, can't it? I mean, it's lovely to hear a children's talk about God loving us and Jesus dying for us. But then we hear a Bible passage like the one that was just read. I don't know how closely you are paying attention. The idea of hell, the idea of punishment, it's not just uncomfortable... There's an offensiveness to it, isn't there? Especially when you're talking to people who don't believe in God. So, for example, Richard Dawkins has written a book, um, The God Delusion, and in that book he writes this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. And on he goes. Now, of course, I don't agree with Richard Dawkins, but that phrase, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, comes from the kind of things that are happening in the passage that we're looking at today and other parts of the Old Testament that are like it. But it's not just atheists who have a problem with God's judgment. There are authors like Rob Bell, who you may have come across, who claims to be a Christian. And this is what Rob Bell writes in his book, Love Wins. A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. This is misguided and toxic. Kind of feel the weight of that, don't you? Now, we would want to disagree with Richard Dawkins and Robert Bell. We need to if we believe the Bible. But what do you do with a passage like today's passage where King Saul is told to kill men, women... Children and babies. Now there's something disturbing about that. The very existence of hell, the very existence of judgment seems to bring into question God's fairness. And this isn't just a problem that we have. This is a problem for God himself. See, your sin, my sin, the sin of our children... And how God can deal with that and still have a relationship with us, that is a huge problem for God. And so we're going to be thinking about all that this morning. But firstly, let's think about this unpleasant task of God's judgment that is assigned to King Saul here in the Old Testament. Look there in 1 Samuel 15 as I read it again. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. 
Now, that word there for infants is, is the word for breastfeeding babies. That's the difference between children and infants. And verse 3 there is exactly the kind of thing that upsets people like Richard Dawkins and Rob Bell. But look, if you don't feel something offensive about it, maybe you've missed what it was saying. Even the way the writer records the details in verse 3, men and women, children and infants, the writer didn't have to say that. He could have just said, destroy everything. It's almost as if we're meant to feel the horror of this as we read it. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, what do you do with a verse like that? It's no use just saying that the God of the Old Testament uh, is different. We follow Jesus now. That's a cop-out because God does not change. This is the same God that we follow. Have a look in verse 2. There's a bit of a clue there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. That verse is giving us a reason for what God is doing, what he's doing. So the context is that this is not random. This is not even unfair. The reason God is doing this is that it is a punishment on the Amalekites for what they did to Israel hundreds of years earlier when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now, what's that talking about is way back in Exodus 17, when the descendants of Abraham were slaves in Egypt and God rescued them, these defenseless Israelites who'd just come out of Egypt, men, women and children and babies and old people and young people, they were passing through the country of the Amalekites. They were not fighting them. They were not a threat. They were just passing through. And the Amalekites came and attacked them. Not just attacked them, they picked off the weak people at the back, the old men, the women, the children, the tired people. Now, when people do this kind of thing, when people attack innocent men and women and children, we often hear, why doesn't God do something? How can God allow that to happen? Well, back then in Exodus 17, God did do something. He made a promise. In Exodus 17, verse 14, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now we read a very similar thing again in Deuteronomy 25. So the Bible wants us to be very clear about this it wants us to understand why this is happening. Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he's giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. See, God does not want his people to forget what the Amalekites did, and that's the context for what's happening here in Samuel. 
Now you might ask, well, why does God wait 200 years before he punishes the Amalekites? That was 200 years ago, Exodus 17. We're not told here why God waits 200 years. But there's clues to that kind of question in other places in the Bible. So, for example, in Genesis 15, God is talking about a completely different group of people, the Amorites. Okay, don't get them confused. Amalekites, Amorites. But with the Amorites, God says this to Abraham. Genesis 15, you, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, he's talking about to the promised land, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What's going on there is way back when God promised to Abraham that he will give him a special land, God wants to give the descendants of Abraham some land. In order to do that, God is going to have to wipe out the people who currently live in that land, but it's not fair to do that at the time because God never punishes people who don't deserve it. But there will come a time when it will be fair because they will deserve it. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God is big. He rules over entire nations. His decisions span hundreds of years. He sees generations come and generations go. He sees kings rise and kings fall. And that's not going to answer all of our questions But what the Bible is very clear on is that when God judges an individual or a nation, it is never unfair. There are reasons for it, even if we don't always see what they are. Now, look, there's other questions that we could ask, and the Bible has lots of answers to. We don't have time for thinking through all the aspects of God's judgment this morning. But I just want you to see that it is fair... Although that doesn't make the task of judgment any more pleasant. So back in 1 Samuel 15, there was quite a build-up to this command to Saul, wasn't there? I think because God knows this will be a hard thing to do. Verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, so listen now to the message from the Lord. Okay, that Twice this is from the Lord. God is very clear to Saul that this command is coming from him. This kind of task is not the task you take it on yourself to do, no. Saul is acting on behalf of God here and that's why he needs to do exactly what he's told, which he doesn't. Saul is disobedient and that is a big problem. Because Saul is not acting on his own behalf, he is acting as an agent of God here. And Saul is disobedient, not because he feels sorry for the women and children, not because he thinks God's judgment is harsh, no. Saul is actually quite evil here. He kills the women and children, he spares some of the animals because of his own selfishness. There's actually something quite sickening about this, verse 7. 
Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Okay, he was told not to do that. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul, notice Saul, because he'll try and get out of this later. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. How can Saul take this so lightly? That in this terrible task of judgment, he actually picks off some of the spoils for himself. He's sounding like the very Amorites that the judgment is meant to be upon. It's worse than that. When Saul is confronted about this, he lies about it. Look at verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers bought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. That is such a natural human reaction when we do something wrong, to blame someone else. What did Adam say in the garden? Eve made me do it. What did Eve say? The snake tricked me. What does Saul say? The soldiers did it. That's not the case of all. Back in verse 9, it specifically said, Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep. There is something so corrupt about the human heart that when we disobey God, we try and shift the blame. But Samuel says, I've had enough, stop. I don't want to hear any more lies. He confronts Saul directly about it. Look at verse 20. The problem is though Saul lies again. Verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. This is sort of slightly changing now, and it seems that Saul has talked himself into somehow seeing that this is a good thing. This is to offer as sacrifices to God now. Saul says that he's only kept the sheep for a religious good purpose. Does Saul actually believe this? The crazy thing is maybe he does. Because that's what sin can do. It actually blinds people into actually thinking that they're doing the right thing as they disobey God. And look, that's what people do. When you do something that the Bible clearly tells you not to do, in order to get rid of the guilt, some people actually talk themselves into believing it is the right thing to do. I've heard of people who have committed adultery and said they believed it was the loving and right thing to do. Now that's the thing about that kind of gross sin when you do it. 
it is so inconsistent with following Jesus that you either need to deny Jesus and walk away from God, and that is what some people do, or you try to keep following God, but then in order to do that, you need to deny the sin that you've done. And that is what some people do. You can't have Jesus and be living with sin. You either deny Jesus or you deny the sin. That's what Saul's trying to do here. Somehow in his mind, he has turned this into a good thing. I haven't done anything wrong, he says. I just wanted to keep the animals for a sacrifice. Now, perhaps that's why God's judgment can seem overly harsh to us. Because we all fail to appreciate how bad our sin is. That's the deceptive thing about sin. We're all caught up in it. We can't even see our own sin clearly. So we want to downplay the wrong that we've done. Which means any time we look at God's judgment, it will seem overly harsh to us. Samuel here, though, names it for what it is. It is complete disobedience on Saul's behalf. No amount of making it religious can make up for the fact that Saul has disobeyed God. Verse 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, see, religious things, as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Do not underestimate how evil it is to disobey God. And so again, we see God's judgment fall here. This time, not on the Amalekites, though. This time, God's judgment will fall on King Saul. Because Saul has disobeyed God. God announces his judgment on Saul at the end of verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now after that judgment is announced, Saul tries to apologise. But it's too late. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people. So I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Looks genuine. And that's how often it works when people sin. They deny it, they lie about it, and then only after it's exposed, they say sorry. And often that's not true repentance. That's just being embarrassed that you got caught. Feeling sorry is not enough. God sees through that. And so even though Saul begs for God's forgiveness, it doesn't work like that. God is not stupid. Verse 25. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord 
has rejected you as king over Israel. As you read on, God does actually show some mercy to Saul. God is kind to Saul in a, in a, in a, in a small way, but Saul cannot remain on as king because God needs to be fair. And it's in this last bit of chapter 15 that we see God's problem with judgment. See, God needs to be just. God needs to be fair. He can't just let people get away with disobeying him and then lying to cover it up. There's nothing good in that. And yet God does not delight in punishing. Look at verse 35. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. God is not just some petty vindictive thing out there like Richard Dawkins says. God loves people. He grieves over their sin. His heart breaks for the mess we make of this world. So as repulsive as the idea of judgment is to us, Imagine how terrible it is for God to punish people he loves. God does not enjoy punishing people. He was grieved about this. And yet he must punish people if he is to be fair and just. And we sort of sense that, don't we? Even with a human judge, you know? If someone breaks into your house and steals and they go to court... And the judge says, it's okay, off you go. That would be wrong. If someone crashes into your car and they do, you know, $4,000 damage and it goes to court and the judge says, it's okay, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay for the damage anything, off you go. That would not be fair. If someone lies, God can't just ignore that and say that it doesn't matter. It does matter. And all the things that we do, they all add up, and it's a problem. See, the biggest problem that we should have with God's judgment is not worrying about God's judgment falling on innocent people. That's never going to happen. The biggest problem we should have with God's judgment is how God can let guilty people off. Because we all deserve God's judgment. Like Saul, we make excuses. We think we're okay before God. But God's judgment is always deserved. It is never unfair. And so if we're honest with ourselves, the problem has to be, how can any of us go free? And just like the rest of 1 Samuel helps us to appreciate Jesus, so does this chapter. In a wonderful way. Because as we read on into the New Testament, we find out that through Jesus, God has provided a way for people to escape his terrible judgment. And he does that in a way that he can still be fair and good. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it's like he took the fine for us. He took God's punishment that should have fallen on us. It's like this in the New Testament. This is how it's described in 1 Peter 3.18. 
For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us. Why? To bring you to God. See, God wants to have a relationship with you. That's why he gave his son Jesus to die in your place, to bring you to God. That is very personal, to bring you to him. So the way to escape God's judgment, it's not by pretending that you've never done anything wrong. No, it is to be honest with God that you have done wrong and asking him to forgive you through Jesus. The gospel of Jesus, it confronts us with our sin, it shows us our problem, and at exactly the same time, it gives us God's solution. Tim Keller describes it like this. The gospel, the good news, is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, your sin is worse than you ever dared believe. And your natural inclination will be to run away from the ideas of God's judgment. Everything in you will be offended by it. You will want to minimise your sin. Pretend that it does not exist. There's a better way to deal with your sin. God is inviting you to come to him. To have it washed away. To be forgiven. His love and his forgiveness is greater than you could have ever dared to imagine. However bad your sin is, he can wash it away. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that as we look at the cross of Jesus, where he gave his life for us, thank you that we see our own hearts the deceptiveness and the sin and the excuses. And we see that in your sight, how terrible that was, that your own son had to die for it. And there was no other way to get rid of it. And yet, Father, thank you that in the cross we also see your heart that wants to forgive us your fairness that has dealt with our sin properly 
and your forgiveness offered to us all through Jesus. Father, help us not to make excuses for the wrong we do, but help us not to mull over it and, and feel dirty about it. Help us to be able to accept the forgiveness that you have and live out of our new hearts when we're born again. Father, thank you that the gospel doesn't just condemn us. Thanks that it brings us great hope. And Father, we pray that we would be able to live in the certainty of your love and your acceptance that comes through Jesus. Thank you that we don't have to fear your judgment. Amen.